Hello, and welcome to another episode of the SkyTap Podcast. A couple of quick housekeeping activities. My name is Noel Wurst. I'm the host of this program and SkyTap's manager of corporate communications. And this show is sales pitch free. It gives us the opportunity to sit down with some incredible folks from the software development, software testing, IT operations, and virtual training spaces, and to share the enlightening conversations we have with those individuals with all of you. This week's show <clears throat> wraps up our attendance of the eLearning Guild's DevLearn 2016 conference that we attended in Las Vegas. Last week's episode, which if you haven't checked out yet, I highly recommend that you do, featured an interview with Jennifer Hoffman and Megan Torrance, who both gave great sessions at the show. And this week's episode is our chat with Keith Quinn from the Scottish Social Services Council. I was joined on this conversation with SkyTap's own Seth Payne. Keith Quinn uh, absolutely blew us away. I don't even really know what else to say, so I'm going to try and not say too much more, but to let you listen for yourselves to learn just what kind of an impact that training can have, not just on a business's bottom line, but on children, families, the community, and possibly the world as a whole. Obviously, not everyone is creating the type of training that Keith and his team are, but what Seth and I found out that was so powerful was that Keith's efforts and unique approaches to training that are truly immersive and impactful for learners are just as applicable to the business world as well, and probably should be borrowed from heavily by anyone who desires a higher level of engagement with their students. So I'm going to leave it at that. I'm not exaggerating in the slightest when I say that our conversation with Keith absolutely moved us and left Seth and I with a lot to think about after it was over, and I hope the conversation impacts you similarly. You're listening to the SkyTap Podcast. So you are giving a session on Friday titled Using Immersive Simulations to Develop Real-World Skills, and I really thought that title was so wonderfully loaded, and we can probably conduct this entire interview just picking apart each word of that title alone. So to get started, I wanted to see if you could define what, what makes a simulation immersive in virtual training today, and what are some of the real-world skills that that type of training is, is able to, uh, to improve or benefit? Sure, yeah. Um... Contrary to what folks might expect, immersion doesn't come from um, fancy 3D graphics or virtual reality or any of that. Um, it comes from emotional engagement. Um, we started getting into simulations because in the social service sector, one of the key training tools that's used for uh, college-based learning is the case study. And you're given a scenario, and then the, the student is told, oh, well, what we want you to do is tell us how you would deal with this and give the theory that supports it. Now, the big problem with that, massive problem with that, is it becomes an intellectual exercise. So they rattle off their answer. It all sounds a bit trite. It's academically fine. But they never have to deal with the consequences of their actions, and there is no emotional engagement whatsoever. The, 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 the scenario doesn't come off the page and inhabit the real world. So what we do is we get that emotional engagement. Um, and what we're really looking to do is to give folks the opportunity 
to rehearse uh, assessment and investigation skills, interviewing skills, uh, and collaboration with other professionals. Um, because in the real world, especially the collaboration with other professionals, as soon as you try and do that in the real world, all kinds of barriers are in place. Nobody wants to look stupid in front of the other professional. So they don't ask the silly question that sometimes needs to be asked. And what we've found is if you put that online, there is a perception of anonymity. And it's less threatening to ask the silly question because you're not seeing the body language around the room or the rolling of the eyes or whatever. And you can ask the question. Um, so that's kind of where we go in terms of skills. But the immersion, it's not about technology. It's, uh, that, the fact that technology is the last consideration. It's all about the narrative. It's all about the story. And it's about getting people to suspend disbelief. And we managed to do it in some fairly simple ways and inexpensive ways. And it's probably, in many respects, more immersive than the 3D worlds that I've seen. Yeah? Yeah. So uh, I, I'm thinking back to my business school days. You mentioned case studies. Um, <clears throat> I'm curious, um, could you maybe ta talk a little bit about what, what that looks like for a learner? Uh, to to take on uh, a case study that's in that you know, simulated and and that they get that emotional. What does that look like? Um, well, for us, I suppose the starting point is we use the lowest level of technology required to do the job. So we build simulations in flat HTML with media resources. So the case study, uh, the narrative looks like an opening scenario which says X, Y, and Z has happened. Here's who the key players are. Now we want you to make a decision, A, B, or C. So it's basically a branching scenario. You pick an action that you think is the best action to take. The next part of the narrative you see is, well, you chose to do this. So here's the consequences. Here's what happened next. Um, and we step somebody all the way through the process right to the very end. Um, there's one of the simulations we do uh, where if you take an action which is to observe and assess repeatedly, what you get to is uh, a family member in intensive care, children removed and placed into the formal care system, and, and it comes to you as a voicemail from the domestic violence unit at the police station. And what we're really looking for is that sharp intake of breath when they realise, oh my God, what have I done? We just had that sitting here hearing it. I mean, right? that wasn't, yeah, I can't so, imagine getting that as a training. And, and what we do in the, in the interface is we created uh, a town, uh, created a map, populated it with services, uh, all fictitious. Uh, and we also created a street for the family or individuals to live in. But we don't just tell you about them. Every house in the street you can click on and it will tell you who's there. And what we're really trying to do is build up a picture of here's the environment this family lives in. Mm -hmm. um, and we've had scenarios where, I mean, it's 
the first one we did was domestic violence and substance misuse, you know, and, and uh, a query about child neglect. We've done them on um, parents with learning disabilities, and that also featured issues like um, young carers. So you had a 15-year-old who was a primary carer. It, f it featured issues about autistic spectrum disorder, a whole, a whole bunch of stuff around that. We've done it on people um, taking control of their own care. It's a, a new policy system in, in the UK and Scotland called self-directed support, where we enable the, the folks to interview the person being assessed, uh, even though it's pre-recorded, pre-scripted video, uh, and then fill out an assessment. So, you know, and we did one where it was, um, you could come in from the viewpoint of one of five different professions all dealing with the same family. So you could be a teacher, you could be a speech and language therapist, you could be a community health professional, you could be a social worker. And the idea is everybody's working with the same family. And we added onto that a, a bulletin board messaging system so you could talk to peers were involved so social workers could talk to social workers but crucially you could also talk to the other professions and ask that question about you know I think a speech and language therapist does x y and z am I right and then the answer might come back no you're way off base but this is what we actually do and it, so we're kind of what we're trying to do is create environments where people get sucked in and we use audio as a replacement for uh, voicemail and we use video but the video is um, it's a person to person so the the person on camera is speaking to you the learner and we use it to turn up the emotional heat so we can have things like we can have a parent ranting at the camera about how dare you interfere in the life of my family and da 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 da, -da and I, you know, and I'm going to do this and as for you and they look off really and when I show that at presentations, you could see folk beginning to move back in their chair, right? And you go, but you know what? If you work in children's services, that's at least a weekly occurrence, you know, if not daily. Um, and it's, it's, it's that kind of trying to get to the gut and involve the emotional intelligence as well as the intellectual stuff. That's, that's what's immersive. Um, and we use subject matter experts to give us the narratives so that we know that I mean, when I talked about the um, the person taking charge of their own care, the, the, the character there uh, has multiple sclerosis. And not only did we get subject matter experts to write the narrative, we also had it checked by somebody who has MS and said, does this sound real? You know, and we got her feedback um, throughout the development process, uh, so we knew that we were on. So that, as far as she was concerned, we were absolutely reflecting a lived reality. You know, so and if you can if you can get that in flat HTML with some media, that's that's a big win. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So the, when you were speaking about the anonymity. I was going to ask you too, uh, someone I interviewed at a conference earlier this year, she said that she believed that e-learning, that style of, of, of training, had the ability to be even more effective than in-person training. And like you mentioned, being able to have that anonymity where, again, the things you're talking about doesn't make someone necessarily feel comfortable. 
but maybe a lot more comfortable than having it done, you know, in person. And that, you know, it goes beyond being able to just offer more classes by having them recorded and that kind of thing, but actually having it be more effective, that technology does allow for some sort of things, especially if there's any kind of, um, you know, over-the-shoulder view or the ability to then interact with someone in real time as well, that this style of training sounds highly effective for yeah. the work that you're doing. Yeah. Um, I, I used to be uh, a face-to-face training person. Mm-hmm. An instructor. I was a what in my my parlance was a staff development officer for a large uh, state-run uh, part of the state in, in Scotland. But um, you would often have people who were silent in groups, mm-hmm. and it's hard to involve them without putting them on the spot. So these people tended to stay silent for long stretches of whatever you were trying to get across. What I've found is that when you move that experience online, it's the people who would be silent in groups who are often the most vocal online. Mm-hmm. Um, and what we, if you look at the t- using text-based uh, chat for support sessions, you also deal with the issue of uh, people who may not have English as their first language. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I did uh, one of these sad folk that's got more than one master's degree. Um, and the second master's degree I did, um, there was people on the course from Malta, from uh, Spain, from uh, Ireland, and from the UK. And the Maltese and Spanish students couldn't cope with voice chat, particularly with, with folk like me involved in folk from Northern Ireland whose accent's even more strong than mine, they couldn't cope with the dialect. But as soon as you moved to text chat, they were absolutely at home. So there are ways in which the technology can mitigate uh, and make it a much more inclusive experience for people. And one of the things I kind of try and impress on employers is don't create it, dump it online and then walk away you need to be there and support the learners through the process as well. Uh, and if we create the content and we create the resources, you guys need to create the support systems um, and, and help maximise the benefit. So before you were, you were describing scenarios <clears throat> involving families, children, sickness, things like that, um, which certainly I think most of us can relate to, and that's it's... Uh, um, depending on how it's presented, it's I can see becoming emotionally engaged in that kind of uh, story or simulation. Um, how how do you get that same level of emotional engagement when you're dealing with something like something a little more mundane, right? Like uh, like a certain how do, how am I going to hedge my my fuels if I'm an airline or you know whatever it might be? Like how do you get that uh, same level of of interest and engagement when it's not something that really kind of hits you in that uh, emotional spot? I think I think the key uh, to any of that is to to personalize it and humanize it for the for the learners. I was just in a session earlier about uh, podcasting. And using stories and podcasting as as a means of uh, providing online education. That's what we're doing here. Yeah, exactly what we're doing here. But these guys were writing scripts and creating serialized stories, 
and they were teaching um, insurance adjusters how to do it. So if somebody of X, Y and Z has happened to a policyholder, is it covered? How do I know? How do I work through the process? Now, for somebody like me, you know, that's when the eyes begin to glaze over. <laughs> Right, it's exactly your point. How do I how do I get it so that I emotionally invest in that? But what they did was they created a narrative of a small business. They created characters. They created the business. They created and, and turned the the adjustment exercise into almost a who done it. Hmm. So I mean, and I, I I've done some work with uh, uh, some colleagues in Finland. And they are exactly the scenario you're talking about. They, they run uh, online learning for airport staff. And some believe me, some of that it would really make you yawn very fast. But it says, as soon as you engage the narrative and as soon as you start trying to create a story, and the key thing is, is give the learner a focus that's human or feels human, yeah. even though they're only text or images on screen. I mean, we never create a character and don't give you an image so that you, a bit like, you would never have somebody in a TV series where you never saw their face. You've got to, to get that kind of investment in a character, you've got to show them what they look like. Um, and I thought their example this afternoon was fantastic. You know, because when they said that they did uh, insurance adjustment, I thought, I'm in the wrong session. <laughs> but it was really, really interesting they took what is arguably quite an old format, and they've breathed a lot of life into it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think you can do that. I mean, what we've done, mm -hmm. there's nothing we've done that you couldn't take and transpose right. to other sectors' activity. I mean, it's easy for us to, to get the emotional bit because you're talking about human services. I imagine on your side you have to be careful not to be manipulative almost. Right? Yeah. Not to too far with it. Yeah, I mean, we, we did, the, the scenario we did with the parents with learning disability, we got somebody for a learning disability advocacy group to help us write it. And the resource was aimed at managers of daycare services for children, you know, so pre-fives, well, maybe up to seven. Um, and when, when the advocate was helping us write the story, I had to stop her and say, this is, we've got, we have to tone this down. And she says, but it's real. Mm -hmm. I said, I know, I know it's real. But bear in mind your audience is childcare professionals, not people in the learning disability sector. They will think that you've, you're exaggerating. You know, and they won't believe it because it sounds extreme. I said, what we can do is create our scenario and at the end put a link in to, they had a, a page on their website which was like service users' voices, and there was like you know two three paragraphs of this is this happened to me, and we said we can put that link in so that folk can see you know what we actually toned this down for you, because you're right you could get to the point where you could really wind it up to the extent where folks stop engaging because they go yeah you're just exaggerating. That would never actually happen. Mm -hmm. And if we get to that point, we've lost it. Mm -hmm. So we always make sure we stay within what is currently, you know, lived experiences. Uh, and and that's where we, we try and get that sense of, you know, not only could this happen, it has. You know, because, I mean, I, I was involved in writing the first one. 
And there was four of us, and we all used aspects of previous experiences in the sector. But we just kind of melded them in a way where it was unidentifiable, you know. And that's where we kind of were trying to work out the formula for making it real enough um, without exaggerating. That reminds me, Seth, what you were saying too, and, and what you were just saying as well is that you know we talk a lot about you know technical training, complex software training, the, the, the airport training you mentioned as well, but being able to suggest someone tie in a bit of a story of not just you're going to take a class on how to complete this one action, and again making sure not to not to go too far and make it seem unbelievable, but tying in any kind of you know fictitious but realistic story of, and here's what happens when you when you don't complete it in this amount of time or here's what happens if you if you if you think you've completed it and you leave it open the the ramifications of those kinds of things so it's not just you didn't pass the class take it over again you didn't complete this the right way and, and look at the different effects it can have it gives people a lot more motivation to to do it right so um, another thing that um that uh, that you bring up in your session on on Friday is is how to design simulations for an audience that has limited time available. And we brought this up a little bit earlier, but there's a lot of focus at shows like this on micro learning, uh, remote access, low bandwidth, um, on demand, self-paced course offerings. We'd love to know about when someone's taking a course like this. How do you uh how do you make it available and effective for someone who can only take certain parts if they want to try and take them out of order or take one and they, they're not available for another week? How do you, how do you work in that kind of design for uh, that self-paced access? Um, because of the way we construct the, the scenario, so it is very much, you know, kind of here's uh, a, a situation. Mm -hmm. Define your action. Once you've taken the action, you're going to see what happened next. Mm -hmm. So we always start them on, it's Monday and it's in February, or, you know, for example, this has happened, what do you do next? Each of those sections will only take you, you know, 20 minutes, half an hour, they're not long. If you, if you, if you do them on a very kind of superficial level, you'll get through them in 10 minutes. But we build in things like reflective diaries and stuff. We actually want folk to say, I did this, here's why I did it. Uh, if I was doing it again, I might change what I did. I didn't expect this consequence, and that surprise. You know, so you're actually getting folk to think about what they did and why. So you're you're looking at each one of the scenario, each um, step, taking about thirty minutes. Um, we've got a very a ludicrously simple system of bookmark where you are, and then jump straight back into where you left off. Mm. Because th that scenario you're talking about is very real for us, where people, learning development is getting pushed to the margins. Uh, people are uh, struggling to be released for classroom training. And we really are you know, looking at how can we deliver things that will take 10, 15 minutes. So we, we put these scenarios online, we leave them online, and they're open-ended. You can do that, you fit it in wherever you want to fit it in. One of the things that I'll be saying on Friday that um, we're quite keen to do is to look at episodic sim uh, simulation so that we, c we create something and we release one episode a week mm -hmm. to take folk through it. Um, but we deliberately put the whole thing online for the first five or six we did because we wanted to put the resources out and let people self-pace. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, and it's, it's, it's funny because it, you, you, when you release something into the wild, unexpected things happen. So you, we aimed the first three at managers who completed them and then went, you know what, this would be really good for training my staff. And then they started to use it as a training tool for their own staff um, to give them insights into bits of practice they might not come across on a daily basis. But the key thing was the whole thing was available online. It was open access to the whole lot and it was work at your own pace. So in the in this the simulation where we had the discussion forums, it was all asynchronous. And that was the beauty. I mean, because you had people who might, you know, be in the discussion forum and not be back for another week. But if there was a question, if they'd posted a question, they would get the answers. Um so again it's just I think sometimes we overthink it. And we try and create, you know, really fancy systems for addressing some of these things. Keep it simple. Very, very, very simple. Uh, and so far it's worked. Last question I had for you was, uh, how are you measuring the effectiveness of this approach? How are you, I mean, I imagine there's really positive, uplifting answers to that and maybe some, some sad ones too with the style. But how, how do you go back and find out um, who, when it's just online like that, how do you find out who viewed it? Uh, what they did with that information uh, is it just the number of you know uh, i don't mean to say just but is it you know is it the number of times a course was watched um is it um the is it less uh problems uh less families with issues in a community how, how are you measuring the effectiveness um i suppose the the answer is kind of twofold um we get a lot of information from our analytics so we can tell um who's there where they've come from, how long they stay, I mean, down to individual IP addresses. Um, so we can get a lot of granular information from the analytics that gives us the kind of bare bones. The, I mean, what we've also done recently is badge everything. So we're using open badges. And to get badges on our system, you need to say what you learned and how you applied it. And that's where we get the qualitative stuff. Uh, and I mean, we didn't get into open badges for that. We got into that because we wanted people to get recognition for informal learning. But the qualitative data that we're getting out of the system is phenomenal, you know. And people, when you when you badge something like that, they they see the cumulative effect and they want the next badge. Yeah. Um, and we're getting some really, really rich data about what they've learned for the simulation and how they've applied it. We also have a, a, a kind of higher level badge, which is um, not only did what did you do with it, how did you pass that on to others? How did you cascade the learning? And we're getting some fantastic feedback for that as well. Now, it's not coming through in a dashboard style report, but it's coming through. And that's for me, that's the most important bit is we're starting to see um, big amounts of data coming in. The, the long-term thing is what you want to see is more effective practitioners. Mm -hmm. um, and we'll get that through, we, we're also a workforce regulator and everybody must do a certain amount of CPD a year. Um, and we'll start to see that coming through in their continuing professional development returns. 
Um, and we have a, a, a kind of scenario-based learning system called Making Better Decisions, which presents um, practitioners with ethical dilemmas. Uh, and if they get it wrong in real in the real world, they can end up being at a conduct hearing for unprofessional practice. And we worked with the, the conduct staff to identify what the themes were, and we created mini simulations for the themes. Um, and what we expect to see over you know two, three years is the number of referrals for these themes to gradually reduce. Um, because what we were finding is that people were falling foul of our codes of conduct, not because they were bad practitioners, but because they didn't understand what was being asked of them. And what the what making better decisions lets them do is to try something out, and if they get it wrong, they I mean they'll get feedback saying why they got it wrong and how to do how what the corrective action would be, and there's no risk to them or to the member of the public. You know they've kind of they've avoided doing it in the real world, so they've avoided putting themselves in dangerous positions. So. It's a kind of multi-level answer to what you were asking, and um, but we we get pressured for the numbers, you know, how many, how long are they there, all that kind of stuff, and what we've keep saying to people, yeah, that's fine, you know, and the numbers are good and all of that, but what's more important is the qualitative feedback we're getting about how what people are learning and how they're applying it. So I'm a very casual PC gamer. I mean, very, very casual. Uh, but one thing I've noticed, and I think it, it, it relates to what you've been talking about, um, is that there's a lot of new indie games coming from small developers or individual developers. Um, well, maybe, maybe not a lot, but there's been several that have come out which are very interactive. You're in there solving problems, giving clues. Uh, you know, you can play these games multiple times because they respond to your choices and, and things like that. How do you see, uh, it, it, well, it would seem to me that that, that type of a, of a platform for, to deliver it um, co really matches well with what you just described about, uh, about you know, seeing the results of decisions yeah. that were made, what, what should have been done. Um, and I know you mentioned that that technology doesn't, you know, keeping it simple is is important. But do you see um, some of these ideas expanding out into more of a almost gamification uh, yeah. on, on a bigger scale? Um, absolutely. I mean, we we are driven by um, budget, so everything I've described here has been done on an absolute shoestring budget. Um, uh, there's a guy uh, I know from Finland called Harry Katamo who produces games exactly as you're describing, that are very AI-driven, uh, very, very sophisticated. And I would love to have Harry involved in taking one of our simulations and bolting on the AI at the back so that we could do a lot of the sophisticated, on-the-fly uh, adaptation to learner action. But the reality for us is the budgets just don't allow it. We, we are uh, funded by Scottish Government. The budgets are what they are, and we try and stretch them as far as we can. But I, you're absolutely right, yeah. I mean, I would, I mean I'm, I'm already looking at ways in which we can um, look at adaptive learning with a small A. 
and you know how far can we go down that road before we need to phone Harry in, in Finland and say how about coming over you know because if we can do it in a small way great I mean it's just like we one of the things that I'm going to be or yeah something I'm going to be saying on Friday is about we need to pay attention to game designers you know learning development professionals can be a bit kind of precious but game designers are actually better at doing some of the things we claim as as ours like incentivizing learning like you know building experiences where they completely engage the learner like um, encouraging people to learn from failure even if you're a casual gamer, you know if you want to get to the next level and you can't do it, you're going to try and try and try until you do. And in our terms, that's about having stretch objectives that are just far enough in advance of the learner. Mm-hmm. Game designers have got that worked out to a T. And I, I, I saw Roger Shank uh, speaking uh, where he said, we should embrace failure as learning development professionals, because that's the point at which the learner is most responsive to trying something new. And yet our formal education systems actively punish failure. So when you have people in the workplace, they fear to fail. And actually, a lot of the time, I'm I'm talking to my staff about creating scenarios where we want them to fail. We want the sharp intake of breath and that cold feeling when you think, what have I just done? Because if it's only code, that's fine. If it's a real family, it ain't fine at all. So it's better that that failure happens in the virtual world than it does in the real. Well, that is going to wrap up this week's episode of the SkyTap podcast. We thank you, as always, for joining us. And we hope you enjoyed our conversation with Keith Quinn. It was so powerful to to hear from Keith about how no matter what your subject matter is, uh, training has the opportunity to make their classes so much more engaging, so much more immersive, and so much more effective uh, by tying in real-world scenarios that your learners are currently facing. If you want to see more from SkyTap, you can check us out on our blog at skytap.com. You can also subscribe to this podcast at both SoundCloud and iTunes by just searching for the SkyTap podcast. We always post new episodes to the blog and to our social media channels like Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook and more. You can always find us there as well. We'll see you again soon for a new episode of the SkyTap podcast.